0: Oh, yeah. Good morning, Midland Free. Thank you. Welcome here. I'm delighted uh, to be speaking with you this morning. My name is Jeremy. I'm the preaching pastor here, and uh, we welcome you to another wonderful Sunday at Midland Free. As you saw this morning, there's a couple of changes coming up with Memorial Day weekend and also this summer. I kind of flubbed up last week. I totally forgot to promo my own little class. And hopefully that's of encouragement to you who are expecting promos for your thing. I even forget my thing sometime too, like where are my keys, what am I doing, whatever. But here we are, and uh, last week we talked about the Trinity a little bit. And this summer, I'm going to flesh that out in greater detail and depth in a teaching hour in the first service. Normally in the summers we'd go to uh, just one service, but in order to offer you just a little bit more equipping and uh, building up, The first hour, I'm going to be teaching a seven-week class in July and August, and I am truly excited about that and hope that uh, you'll have the opportunity to join me. But my name is Jeremy, and uh, this is Midland Free. We're in the book of 1 John, and my tradition is I frequently like to start the uh, sermon with a little bit of a story just to uh, walk you gently into the path that we're going to be following And this morning is no exception. Uh, This is soccer season, so there's only one thing going through my mind right now, and that is soccer, the amazing Midland Soccer Club and their beautiful fields and all the excitement therein. It's a ton of fun. Well, most days. Well, there was that one day for about 20 minutes. (laughs) Just kidding, it's great, uh, but it's always exciting to coach a bunch of little uh, children and see what they will latch on to and what they won't. And knowing that their attention spans are short and what I can coach in a short amount of time is relatively brief, I just hit on one thing throughout the whole year. I, I know there's a lot of different strategies you can teach in soccer, and yet I want them just to come away with one thing and I work like the same thing every practice and then work it through the game Hopefully by the end of the year they're doing it. And that is this, is passing. My overall strategy for this U10 age group that I coach is just to pass. That's all I want you guys to do. We're not going to work on a lot of fancy tricks that are super fun and cool and you can impress your friends. I just want you to learn to move the ball down the field. And so we're going to do a bunch of different drills and stuff like that, but at the end of the day I just want to see you passing the ball. And I actually think that at this level... If you pass the ball, you'll win (laughs) because most of the teams at this level are not passing the ball. And it's worked pretty well for us so far. And the other day, we split a couple games. We lost one in the afternoon. In the morning, we beat a team that was bigger and faster and probably even better than us because we were passing. So the coach was like, all right, way to go. Good job, guys. Well, being a coach is also an interesting thing for me because... um, in a very micro level, I get to develop myself. Uh, i not that I'm doing it. God is doing it spiritually because you learn to have those difficult conversations, you know, after the game when little Johnny's mom or little Johnny's dad comes up to you and say, Hey, why'd you do this? You know, he didn't get to play here. You know, blah, 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 blah. that's not any of you. I know. Don't worry. <laughs> but sometimes I get to have those conversations after the game. And I was thinking about that and, you know, I'm the coach and I make the call and I, you know, take the hits at the end of the day and the record says what it is. And so it's interesting because I look at, for example, substitution and I can see when I substitute that there are about five different reasons that I would do so. Um, Some of those are pretty obvious. What's one reason I might substitute? Somebody's tired and worn out. Exactly right. They're they're playing fine. They're doing exactly what I ask them to do, but they're worn out and they just can't go any uh, further. They've run out of gas. It's time for you to come off. Okay, I get that and probably even mom and dad gets that too. What's another reason? Injury, exactly right. They're hurt. They haven't done anything bad, but somebody else has done something to them and they can't continue on. So I have to make that call. Hey, he's limping. There's something wrong. He might be crying. Yesterday I actually carried a kid off. He's hurt. You know, that's part of the game. Come on off. We'll put someone else in your place. What's another reason? Yeah, I got to give other players an opportunity as well. You know, this is a young league, a rec league. You got to develop people. And so, consequently, you know, this guy may be doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. He may not be hurt. He may not even be tired. And yet, coach still has to make the call. Sorry, buddy, you've got to come in. Oh, coach, come on. No, really. <laughs> come sit down. We've got to let this guy play. But he's going to, yeah, I know, that's what he's going to do. He'll kick in the wrong direction, but he still gets to play. <laughs> Here he goes. There's all kinds of reasons. I mean, I might even pull someone off because their shoe is untied at this level, right? There's all kinds of stuff that I might do to pull, to, for someone to come off the field. Now, for example, a shoe untied... I may know which player can't tie a shoe and which one can, and I see somebody going slow like way on the other side of the field, and that shoelace is really tiny. Not everyone on the sideline can see that, but I still call them off and say, okay, time for you to come off because I see exactly what's happening. You're looking down at your feet like this, and I know you can't tie your shoes, and so it's your turn to come off. Come on. Go find mom. Tie your shoe. (laughs) You can come back a little bit later. I made that call. Now, somebody on the other side of the field may not have any idea whatsoever why I pulled that young man off. You just put him on the field two minutes ago. Yeah, but his shoe came untied, and it's about to fall off, and he can't play. But you don't know that. But I'm the coach, and I do. So there are some decisions I make that you're not going to understand. And that's kind of a take it for granted. Now, as a human, you also have to know that I make mistakes. (laughs) You know, at the end of the day, I'm going to flub a few ones. There's a 100% chance that I will mess up. 100% guarantee you at some point I will make the wrong call so too with my players. That's part of being human But as you know, that's very different with God If you want to think of life in terms of a game then think of God in terms of your coach He's going to make a lot of different calls Sometimes you will understand those calls and sometimes you simply will not But the difference between me and God is that he is perfect and I am not. And so while you may question this coach, it's an entirely different thing to question the other coach. Today, as we look at 1 John chapter 4, what you will see is God's overall strategy for coaching the game. This is how he does it. There's a lot of things he could coach, he could develop, and he will eventually work on those things with you. But his overall main strategy at the end of the day is just one thing. For me, it's pass, pass, pass. For God, it is love, love, love. Here's what I want you to do at the end of the day. I want you to love. Now, it's also a very interesting passage because, you know, we as I think New Testament Christians are frequently looking for the command or the action plan. Or the imperative. We want, you know, step A, B, C, produce X, Y, Z. Give me the formula, produce the results. But in this passage, you'll notice that you don't see that at all. Instead, what you see in this passage is only one command. And in fact, it's hardly even that. It's what is called a hortatory subjunctive. Or in other words, it's a suggestion. It is like when your great-aunt calls you in for dinner, and she says, Okay, guys, let's go into the kitchen and eat. Now, is that a, do you want to come into the kitchen and eat? <laughs> not really. It's kind of a command. It's like, no, really, guys, it's time to eat. And if you want to eat, the food's hot and fresh. And if you want to get it, now's the time. And later, I don't know. But now you should come. Now, what you need to notice on that command, though, is that it's not a punishment, right? Right? Your aunt is not saying to you, get in the kitchen now or I'm going to kill you. You know, dad might, but great aunt Susie won't. You know, dad's saying, hey, kids, get in the car. That's pretty direct. That's a command. Great aunt Susie is saying, okay, everybody, let's go. Here we go. All come together now. Together. Let's eat. It's going to be fun. And it will. And it's good. That's the difference between what's going on here in this passage is you look through this passage and there's not a single dad or imperative command. There's no fear of punishment. There's no fear of judgment. He's not calling you to your room and saying, do this or else I'm going to get you. Instead, he's saying, hey, guys, let's do this together. Everybody come together and here's what we're going to do. And then once you do so in the very first phrase, he just says, you know, let us love one another let's do this and then throughout the rest of the passage what he does is says this is what that'll look like here's a definition here's how this would play out in real life and it's really interesting to me and I hope to you as well because as a pastor or a theologian you look at the text you're like wow this is so cool we got definition 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 we have theology 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 you know and In a lot of ways, it is sometimes different than what we'd expect. But it is still a profound statement that should guide your life. And at this point in Scripture, it is profound not only for me, but also for the original recipients of the letter. Because they are first century Stoic philosophers. They're not talking about emotion or feelings or anything like that. I mean, they are solid. And consequently... John is going to make this statement twice in this passage that just simply blows their mind. And it should blow ours as well. And that statement is this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, and then again in verse 16. You'll see this up on the slide. Here is the statement. God is love. God is love. Here's the definition of who In a sense, God is. He is love. Beloved, verse 7, let us love one another. Here's your only pseudo command in this passage. Let's do this. Let's do what? Well, let's do this. God is love. And that sure is a strange thing to say, Pastor Jeremy. You're right. It is. What in the world do you mean that God is love? Is love God? Do we worship love? Well, absolutely not. If you were here last week, I hope that you clearly heard me define the doctrine of the Trinity, saying that God is one, and there are three persons, and it works like this. Consequently, we worship a person, not some ethereal, mystical force or spirit being that's everywhere, but instead a real and concrete person. This is whom we worship. So what does it mean then to say that this person is love? How does that work? 1 John chapter 4 beginning in verse 7. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to follow along with me. Question has been raised and I think John will give us the answer. I'll walk that through for you in four steps and explain those after this. 1 John chapter 4 beginning in verse 7. he begins and says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, last week we said, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know, this is how, and to believe the love that God has for us. For God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now by this, love is perfected, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. As he is, so also are we in the world. Now there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now... Let's be clear, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. For God is love. 1 John chapter 4. Thanks be to God for the word of the Lord. As you can see, this passage sort of goes back and forth and back and forth. And as I read various commentators, they're like, hey, this structure, I don't know. <laughs> you know, there's like 11 different points here. And rather than give you an 11-point sermon this morning, what I'm going to do is this. is Typically, it's my style to work through each verse, but some of it kind of wraps around and repeats itself. So I'm just going to cover four major areas this morning and try to define for you what I think this passage is saying, that God is love. So here are those four, and they work like this. Number one, God is the source. When we say that God is love, what do we mean? We mean that God is the source of love. I'll flesh these out in just a minute. Number two, that God that love orders all of his acts, that love governs what he does. Because it is who he is, it determines what he does. It orders His acts. Number three, God always initiates. When it comes to love, it's not us starting the ball rolling. It is, in fact, always God. God initiates. God begins. And number four, the implications, the results, is that God's favor upon us, His love, His grace, prompts us to act. Because He loved us, then we love and return. The result is that God's favor or His love prompts us to act. So these four things, let's begin with number one. God is the source. God is the source. One of the verses that you perhaps have heard me quote at times is Romans eleven thirty six, And it says this, you know, one of the big themes you'll hear in my preaching, hopefully, is to God be the glory. Why? Well, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Now, is that just a pretty poetic way of saying something really cool that we all really like God and let's throw in as many prepositions as we can? No. That's actually making, although a poetic, also a deep statement as well. When it says all things are from God, it in fact means all things are from God. That He Himself is the only original and everything else after that is derivative. God is eternal. But everything you see is temporal. But God, who is original. So in a sense, you could say in a very real way that love is from God. Love is from God. 1 John 4, 7. God is its source. As the headwaters are to the Nile, so too is the Trinitarian God to love. Now, why do I include the Trinity in there? We talked about that a lot last week. The reason is this. is Look, the Trinity is eternal and independent. But within the three persons of the Godhead, you have relationship. And within that relationship, you have love. God the Father loves God the Son. God the Son loves God the Spirit. God the Spirit loves God the Father. They're all one. They're in perfect unity and harmony and consequently, this is the ultimate relationship. This is the model for marriage. This is the model for the church. In the Trinity, you find absolute perfection, unity, harmony, and love. And so the Trinity existed before we existed. The Trinity had love in it, and therefore love predates or pre us. Because love was in the Trinity. Love is from God, He is its source. So then, here's the implication. Uh, it's really, I think, quite profound. And it's one of the reasons for evangelism. We go to people to share with them the love of Jesus because you will never know love if you don't know Jesus. Because He is the source from whence it all comes. And that is what 1 John says here in verses 15 and 16. He says, look, whoever confesses Jesus as the Son of God, God abides in him, and he and God So this is how we come to know. This is how. This is how we have come to know God. This is how we've come to know love. It's through Jesus. If you haven't known Jesus, you don't know love. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us because God is love. And then back to that same statement again. Whoever abides in God, and God abides in him. So God is the source. God is the source. Now, I'm just going to... It's kind of a strange statement, so I'll give you just a little clue, but I don't want to flesh it out too much. Whoever abides in God and God in Him. How does that work? Well, 1 John 3, 24, and in a verse in this passage, it talks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, and yet we dwell in God, because the Holy Spirit is part of God. And so in this Trinitarian mystery, there is also a mutual indwelling the spirit indwells us but because we are in the spirit and the spirit is part of the godhead we are in god i know that's a little bit profound but if you look through the new testament you'll always see the apostle paul signing his letters in christ and we've talked about the vicarious exchange that happened at the cross where we are actually in christ and that's what baptism represents you know we're going under and coming up and we are in him well, how are we in Him? Because First John tells us He has given us of His Spirit. He's given Him, in a sense. This is not exactly accurate because the Trinity is profound. But part of Himself. They're, they are distinct persons. But what I mean is, it is of His Spirit. So because the Spirit is in us, then we are in Him. And there's beautiful unity in this mutual indwelling. So, there's your theological side note. But the point is this. God is the source of love. Number one, God is its source. Number two, it orders all of his acts, or it governs who he is. Because God is love, God always does what is best for the beloved. Now, listen, this is huge. Because who is the beloved? Me and you. That's us, right? And that's how God begins this section. What is the very first word he says? Get in here, I'm going to spank you. (laughs) No, that's not how he starts the command. Beloved. Beloved. He begins with a kindness and says, dearly, beloved. Then comes the command... And it is, let us love one another. Now, look at how this works. I want to flesh it out even more. I'm intentionally referencing that earlier illustration I made. Because there's a verse in this passage that says, Hey, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. When Aunt Susie says, come to the kitchen, you're not worried about punishment. You are being commanded to do something. But... There's no fear in that because there's no punishment coming. So, too, within the commands of Christ. He's saying to you, hey, do this, but there's no fear in love, for fear has to do with punishment. Well, wait a minute, I'm guilty, I'm sinful, I've fallen short of the glory of God. What about the punishment? Well, 1 John 4, verse 10, takes care of that. It says this, "...in this is love." Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's a big word, but basically it means he takes our punishment. Propitiation takes the punishment. And because there is propitiation, then there is no punishment. And because there's no punishment, there's no fear. You see how that works? This is love. That God took the punishment for us. He came into the room and didn't spank us, but he received the spanking. Literally. Who got whipped? Not me. I deserved it. But I didn't get it. Somebody else took the whipping for me. That's propitiation. The propitiation takes my punishment and therefore when I am commanded, there's no fear. Because perfect love has been the propitiation and I am in that love because I am in Christ and therefore there is no fear in love. So then, Romans 8.1 says, you know, what have I to fear? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For there is no fear, John tells us, in love. And perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. This is absolutely profound. When you relate to God, when He commands you to do something, you can serve Him in joy and sincerity and love with no fear of punishment whatsoever because Christ has already taken that for you. That is a great place to be. And that, I think, is why then that John is sort of structuring this whole passage like that Because He knows, you know what, if I come into the room and I command, 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 change your heart, change your heart, change your heart, live, 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 love, 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 that's not going to work. Instead, what I'm going to do is say, okay, beloved, God loves you so much. Can you just do that like He did? Like how? Like He did. Because God is love. And He laid down His life for us. He is love. This is what he does, and this is what it should look like. And it's really simple, and yet it's really profound. Can that really be John's vision for the church? Yes. Here is his overall strategy. Love. Just love each other. Love, love, love. And if at the end of the day, that's all you do, you win. The game of life is over, and you get a guaranteed victory if you have loved. Because God is love. Love orders all of his acts. Now let me address something here uh, a little bit controversial, I think, but hopefully not too. Um, we as people who hear these things are in Sunday morning church, and we're comfortable. We're sitting in nice chairs, and we got clean this morning, and we're you know doing okay. But the reality is, we could leave this church, and all of a sudden, you know, proverbially speaking, the stuff hits the fan, and life gets rough. This statement that God is love can begin to run through our mind, and there's a great big question mark after that. God is love? What do you mean God is love? Didn't you see what happened to my kid? No, he was hurt. That didn't seem very loving to me. I don't get it, because you're sitting here telling me God is love, and what I've heard you also say is God is all-knowing, and God is all-powerful, and God is ever-present. And I'm wondering, if you're sitting here telling me that God is love, how that can be true at the same time. When I look at the news, I see people fleeing from Syria and little kids getting ripped out of the rubble. And I see people getting their body parts chopped off in Afghanistan, and I don't see love there. And I see you know racism, and I see greed, and I see injustice, and I see infanticide, and I see abortion, and I see murder, and I see this, and I see that, and I say, where's love? What are you talking about, preacher? That's really cute for Sunday morning, but in reality, when I look around me, that what I see is this. It's a mess. And if I dwell on that too long, I will certainly spiral. And so we're going to do everything we can to keep ourselves busy and distract ourselves and not pay attention to the world around us because it hurts. Life is hard, and I live in America, and i got plenty of food and even clean water. And I still struggle. What do you mean God is love? doesn't seem to work that way for me. God is love? How can that be? Why evil? Whew. Well, that's a question that theologians and Christians and philosophers wrestled with for centuries. I can give you a few answers, and at some point, though I guarantee you, the answers I give will still fall short. Let me show you what I mean. For example, in soccer, I can say that I took a player out of the game because what? He's injured. He couldn't continue. You know, God sees things we don't. and He may see something happen in here that he says, you know what? That person needs to recover with me for a little bit. I'm going to take them out. Or, for example, they may have done something wrong. You know, if they're not passing and I keep telling them passing, I'm going to take them out. Say, dude... I've been telling you, we've been working on this, you're not listening, it's time for you to come over here for a course correction. You need to sit on the side and sit here until you get it figured out. It may be that somebody else hurt him, right? You may have got injured of no fault of your own whatsoever, and that's just part of the game. That's part of the life and world we live. Right now, God said, sin comes into the world, this is what it will do. It will hurt you. He said, no, thanks, we'll give it a try, and guess what? It hurt. And even when it's not our own, sin always has a spillover effect. There's no sin that's contained to oneself, regardless of what it is. You think you can look at a magazine and be okay because you're not hurting everybody else. You don't realize that half the girls there have been sold into slavery to supply your habit. Sin hurts every time it has a spillover effect. And so there's all these reasons we can walk through. We can say, you know, one, two, three, four, five. They're not doing their job. They're injured. They're tired. It's time for somebody else. You know, the shoe could be untied. But in the end, I could build this masterful, theological, philosophical, logical argument about seeing down the corridors of time and whatever else. And here's the reason for pain and blah, blah, blah. But at some point, something's going to come into your life and thump that little card out from under the bottom. And all of a sudden they go, and the entire structure falls to the ground. And you say to yourself, oh man, (laughs) What? what in the world? How can this be happening? God, this is not love. What are you doing? I do not understand. At that point, you've taken the first right step in the right direction. To actually admit that and just say, hey, you know what? I don't see it all. I don't get it. And if I try to explain it, I may say something I shouldn't. That may, in fact, be wrong. But the reality is this. When you look at Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see a lot of people that have suffered. And all these great saints of the past. And you say, how did they get through it? And the answer is in the first verse. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created, so that what is seen was not made of things that are visible. By faith Abel, by faith Abraham, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. At the end of the day, they didn't have answers to these questions either. And yet they believed God, that He is good and that He is love. And so what I can tell you this morning is this. I don't know all the reasons for your pain. I don't know why it happened. And we can come up with little things in this life, but man, if you read the rest of this chapter, you see stuff like this. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Others were mocked and flogged and chained in prison, stoned, afflicted, sawn in two, killed with the sword, put it in the skins of sheeps and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world wasn't even worthy. What is that? It's pain. That's sin. That's suffering. And that's the result of living in this world. And yet we know that God is good. And God is love. And so by faith, We accept that He's the coach and we're not. And we're in this game. And we follow His strategy and play by His rules. And we know that because He is good and because He is love, that no matter what, no matter what, what He does is good. Because love orders all of His acts. So when we come to these situations, we say, Whoa! (coughs) Judgment. Loving judgment. God does what is what is best. Because you are the beloved. This is what I mean. Because you are the beloved, the fact that God is love means this. That He always does what is best for you. He always does what is best. No matter what that is, whether it is painful or whether it is pleasant, He's doing what's best. And so, if you need punished, then it's loving punishment. If you need encouraged, it's loving encouragement. If you need the surgery, God applies the blade. If you need the ointment, He applies the balm. Whatever is best for you at your station in life, that is what God is doing. And so you simply have to believe by faith and trust in Him for the process and the outcome. Because God is love and the whole strategy then is governed by that he is the source he is the thing itself and it orders all he does god is love point, point 1.2 now point 3 god initiates god initiates what's beautiful about this is that verse John 4:10 says it like this in this is love Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. That's love. Love initiates. And that is so cool because when we look at our normal daily relations, that's usually not how it works, you know. Usually we want the other person to take a step towards us and then we'll take a step towards them and they take a step and we take a step and we all come together. But in reality, the Bible says, hey, we were dead and there's no steps being taken at all. We are laying dead in our trespasses and sins and all of our righteousness are like filthy rags and God crossed the divide, bridged the gap and came to us even when there was nothing lovely in us whatsoever. We were completely unattractive. We were not attractive. That's not the way it works in male and female relationships. Right, Adam? I mean, amen? This is the way it works. We're attracted to something and therefore we pursue it because we see good in it. But God is so awesome that even though he sees no good in us, he pursues us. He initiates. He is the source of love and as such, he is the one who brings it. God is love. He initiates. Now, this is our hope in the past because we know that Christ has come. But this is our hope for the future as well. That God will, just like He has done in the past, do in the future. He initiated by sending His Son. God so loved the world that He sent. God, the Father, is the actor in salvation, the Son is the submissive participant and volunteer. God the Father sent the Son. The Son obeyed. And again, guess what? God the Father will send the Son. And the Son will come back. And just like you had in the past, you will have in the future. Only this time, it will not be for the removal of sin, but for the consequence of sin. So that sin has been removed, but now we struggle with it. But in the future, not only the sin, but also the struggle. And that will be good then there are no longer any questions about the results of pain and sickness and death instead we live forever so first corinthians chapter 15 says it like this it's hey you know what here comes a surprise god is going to blow your mind and in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet all of a sudden the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed Everything is different now for this perishable body, the thing I struggle with now, will put on imperishable. And the mortal body will put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal, the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? God will initiate. It's not on us. We can't make the world better. We can't fix it. Yeah, it's a mess. So what's our hope? Our hope that Christ will return. And when He does, then He fixes it and we go into the final act. But up until then, we live by faith because it's a struggle. God initiates. God is love. He is the source. He orders all things. He initiates. And finally, His favor prompts us to act. Now, let me say a little thing about favoritism uh, for a moment. If you have children, you probably know a little bit about this. Uh, Favoritism can kind of go one or two ways, you know. One way is you bestow your favor upon them, and this is what in some experiences seems to happen. They take it for granted, and they say, Oh, yeah, of course, he got ice cream, therefore I should get ice cream. I deserve your favor. <laughs> you know. Okay, that's one way to reason. Or another way might be is that I have earned it. You know, I did my chores this week, therefore you should provide me with this blessing. And the result of it, favoritism when one thinks that they have earned it or that they deserve it is pride and entitlement. You know, you come to the spot where you think, yeah, God loves me. Not so bad, huh? I go to church every Sunday. I tithe. I'm part of the missions committee or whatever. You know, I'm not. No offense. I'm just saying I'm part of a committee. Look at me. You haven't earned it. You don't deserve it. That's pride. That's entitlement. The reality is this. We're all dead. We're unattractive. We're unlovely. And God initiates. And consequently, we don't deserve his favor. We don't earn his grace. He gives it to us freely. Of his own accord. As a result, when we come to it with that attitude, what happens is we don't come out entitled or pharisaical or greedy or you know, whatever. Instead, we come out and say, oh man, ah, he loves me? And he knows everything too? Like he knows everything? Not just what everybody saw, but what I thought, what I didn't say, what was in my heart, what I was inside. He knows it all. And He still loves me? Woohoo, Don't deserve that. Humility, grace, trust, and love. That's what favoritism should prompt in us. When we understand that God's grace or His favor, His love is actually upon us, and we understand who we are, oh, baby, wow, what a blessing... As a result, just like it governs God's actions, it should also govern my actions. Then as I interact with people, it's not out of a spirit of pride or entitlement or deserving or I'm better than or holier than thou. It's like, whoa, my, God is so good. He loves even me. Man, I messed up all the time. And guess what? There's a 100% chance you're going to mess up too. And we're going to mess up together. And this is what our relationship will be like. We'll try, but both of us are going to mess up. And so at some point, I'm going to need to forgive you. And you're going to need to forgive me. And that's the way it works. Because God is love. God is love. So let's all come together to this great big feast and get in the kitchen and just love one another. we got to understand, you know, if you're coming home from work and, you know, whoever's got this issue and you're coming through the door, you're like, all right, phew. I'm ready, I'm ready. Okay, first time, forgave him, I'm doing good. Second time, forgave him, woo made it to two. Third time, forgave him, hey, not so bad. Fourth time, forgave him, wow, I'm doing pretty good. Fifth time, boom, that's enough, right? No more. Wait, 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 was it four or five? I don't remember. Oh, yeah, 70 times seven. I'm not quite there yet. And even if you were, that wasn't the point. He wasn't saying you can do the multiplication, come up with 490 and all of a sudden you're good. The point is it's way more than you ever think. Because the reality of love is that it is eternal just like God and it keeps going and going and going. So every time you forgive, every time, over and over again. Man, that's tough. That's the reality of love. God is the source. It orders all that He does He initiates. We should initiate as well. God came and forgave us before we asked for it. So what do you think you should do with somebody else who's offended or wronged you? They may deserve it. They may not be entitled to it. But that is not the way God treated you. We didn't deserve it. We weren't entitled to it. Yet He came first. So too should we that's the power of this passage. It doesn't command, it just gives an example and shows and says, this is how God did it, so this is how we should do it too. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? I can't explain it, can you? Or who has ever been His counselor? Who has ever given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.